Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 710 in the Twin Cities. As my Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Want to let you know in the 8 o'clock hour, Dave Schultz is back. So look forward to chatting with him. He has been in China teaching at a university there for the past two weeks. Uh, always to get great to get his take on so many issues as well. Well, this half hour... My guest is a journalist who was uh, a war correspondent uh, for the Wall Street Journal, and she has written a book called Dirty Wars and Unpolished Silver. Uh, the book is about her journeys as a war correspondent when there weren't that many war correspondents who were women uh, in different parts of the world and then also talks about uh, the tragic death of her first husband who was also a war correspondent and then talks about a very different life when she married her second husband who became an ambassador uh, she was actually sent to, uh, as she calls it, uh, ambassad- ambassatrix school, like dominatrix school. I'm not pronouncing it correctly as well. But uh, Linda Schuster is joining us right now, the book Dirty, Dirty Wars and Polished Silver. Linda, how do you pronounce that again? Uh, ambassatrix. Ambassatrix. Yes, okay. But understand that that's my own made-up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I looked at it and it was like, Really? That's a school? Yeah. And then there is a school, but that's really actually not, not the name of it. But, no, um, that is not the name of it. All right. Now, let me ask you, when you became a war correspondent, uh, and you covered, I think, primarily at first the, the, the wars in Central America, which back in the day was the sort of war story. This was front page news uh, every day. Were there a lot of women war correspondents? No. Back then, there were actually very few. And the only reason I got sent there is because I worked for the Wall Street Journal, and um, as a woman, they didn't trust me with the stories that were important to them, <laughs> business stories. So they sent me to cover the other stories. The other stories. Well, obviously, still, one of the great newspapers uh, in the world, uh, the Wall Street Journal. But, but So they send you to cover this. And also, you have a very interesting story. You actually ran away from home at the age of 16, and most people might run to, I don't know, L.A. or something like that. And, and you ended up uh, in the middle of... The war, the Yom Kippur War. Tell us right, about that. Right. So, you know, um, the motto on the Indiana license plates, I grew up in Detroit, and the motto on the Indiana license plates back then was wander, which I took as very excellent advice for anyone raised in the region, grow up and leave. And so this was sort of um, part wanderlust and part sort of requisite teenage rejection of uh, my mother's life which seemed beyond boring to me. So um, I ran away from home and, and went to a kibbutz in Israel, and about five minutes after I got there, the Yom Kippur War broke out. Wow, okay. And, and instead of, um, I think many people might be kind of at that point saying, uh, I shouldn't have done this or this isn't for me, it actually kind of made you think, I could do this or I could you know, write about this or I want to be part of this life. Well, the thing about war is that if, unless you're dying, of course, at least as a teenager, I found it oddly exhilarating. 
you're sort of in the middle of the action. And for me, um, I couldn't think of anything better. And in terms of um, your family's reaction... So oh, they were completely freaked out. I mean, <laughs> I mean, understand, think of it, you know, if, I don't know if you're a parent, but your child is on the other side of the earth, and this is before the time that we had social media and internet and cell phones and instant communication, and you hear on the radio or on television that Israel has been attacked by Egypt and Syria, and your child is in the middle of this. Um, I think this would cause anyone to be a little bit concerned. (laughs) Well, you decided, and you ended up in journalism school. Did did you always know that you wanted to be a war correspondent, or did that just sort of come by default? No, I kind of fell into into journalism by default um, when I was trying to figure out where to go to graduate school. But um, having decided on the career, though, I was determined to spend as little time as possible working domestically. And I was very lucky in that respect first to be hired by the Wall Street Journal directly out of college. Which is very unusual. Very. Very Um, unusual. (laughs) And then to be assigned within a year to cover Central America, which back then was one of the hottest foreign stories at the time. And um, one of the things that happened, and it's, you write about the life of the war correspondent, which, you know, you mentioned the adrenal junkie and everything like that. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, I guess, an exciting life. It's dramatic. You met your husband, your, your first husband there. Right. Um, and the, the people are really interesting and they're fascinating and they are sort of all adrenaline junkies, but it's not an easy life. No, it's not. And I mean, besides the fact, um, that I, that obviously I had a very tragic end to that marriage. Um, my husband was killed by 10 months after we were married. We were married in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and 10 months after we were married, he was on the Honduran-Nicaraguan border, and his car went over a landmine, and he was killed. But beyond that... And he was a reporter for the LA Times, he was. right? He and, was a reporter for the... A veteran correspondent for the LA Times. But beyond that, um, I think what I saw a lot on the front lines were a lot of alcoholics, a lot of busted marriages, because I think it becomes very addictive, and it had, takes a tremendous toll on your personal life. Right, and and then also the danger, and I think I think that you know I, I think which, the way you write about this is just I, I think we all underestimate until there is a tragic loss of, of such as your first husband that you know how dangerous this job really is. And uh, certainly he lost his life. And you really had not, you'd only been married less than a year. Yes, yes. And, and, and I mean, it's when you do a job like that, I mean, obviously it's terrifying. I, you know, I think being a woman, perhaps I was a little bit more honest about how terrifying it is. But you basically put your head down and you do the job. And you go at it with sort of the same attitude that you go at with life. I mean, getting into a, getting behind the wheel of your car and driving down the street has a certain amount of inherent risk. Yes, it does. <laughs> but, but you just basically tell yourself the odds of something happening are pretty slim until it happens. And then you realize that, hmm, maybe they aren't so slim. And, and obviously, um, you know, your first husband blown up by a landmine. I mean, how, how did you get the word about that. Oh, I was probably the last person in the universe to find out. At that point, I had been um, named Mexico Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal, so I was actually in Mexico. I had been out reporting a story that night, came back to our apartment, and the AP Bureau Chief, and by then it had been 
all over the news in the United States. My family knew about it. They were trying to get in touch with me and couldn't get through. The AP bureau chief in Mexico called me, and he was crying. And I knew immediately. He didn't even have to tell me what had happened because, I mean, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and the AP bureau chief is crying on the phone. So that's how I found out. Right. You eventually decided, um, and you, you, you kept um, writing and, and in this life, but eventually you decided, maybe I need something, a, a change in course here. Yes. Um, I think that, I, obviously, this did give me pause. And the fact that my, my editors very kindly sent me to Beirut, which was in the middle of a civil war, um, to recover after this while I was grieving also gave me pause. But I went in and I covered South America and then I covered um, South Africa, which was then in the sort of the final throes of apartheid. And while I was there, I was targeted by assassins. And at that point, enough time had passed, I had met some, somebody new. I had met an American diplomat. I had fallen in love again. And I thought, okay, I can, and he asked me to marry him. He was going to be going off to Liberia. Um, to posting there, and I thought, okay, I this is I don't want this is not worth it anymore. I was fortunate enough to fall in love again. I can still life of, live a life of adventure. I can still write, but I'll be safe. And so, or so I thought. And so I gave up daily journalism and married an American diplomat. All right, listen, we have to take a quick break. Uh, we're chatting right now with Linda Schuster and the book that covers all of this. Dirty Wars and Polished Silver. Uh, when we come back from this short break, I want to ask Linda about uh, the school she went to, the ambassadrix school, uh, to, to learn how to be um, an ambassador's wife, which I think is just so fascinating, especially after the extraordinary life she led of, of independence and, and you know, risk and danger. Uh, so keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. <laughs> It's 721 in the Twin Cities, uh, chatting with Linda Schuster. She is the author, author of Dirty Wars and Polished Silver. It is about her life as a war correspondent uh, in Central America, also in the Middle East, and then also how uh, after the tragic death of her first husband, who was also a war correspondent, she ended up falling in love with a diplomat and becoming an ambassador's wife. Uh, the school you write about, and the ambassador's wife school, tell us about that because it's, it, it almost seems like – well, I guess it was a different time and a different era. Well, except that it does happen still. So this, this I call it Ambassadrix School, and it's, as I say, it said it was my own made-up name for the two-week training session that the State Department requires its envoys and their spouses to take. So the course may have changed since I experienced it 20 or so years ago, but back then it felt like a complete throwback. Um, as I write in my Especially book, with this life that you had led, this other world, you must have been going, what am I doing it here? It was, it was just, it was like, I, it was so bizarre. Like Miss Manners or something Right. Like as, that. Yeah. So like, as I write in my book, um, all the ambassadorial appointees were men in that particular class. And it was assumed that none of the wives had careers, or if they did, they would gladly jettison them for the chance to help their husbands represent the U.S. abroad. And during the course, while our friends got, our, while our husbands got juicy classified briefings, we women got such scintillating lectures as your China patterns and you. <laughs> and it was like someone forgot to tell the State Department that Mamie Eisenhower is dead. Yes. All right. And, and so this was, and how many weeks was this course? This was just two weeks, but two it was weeks. enough. It was enough. Okay. Yes. 
Um, and, and were there other? I mean, did you kind of go out for breaks and, and have uh, do eye rolls with others? I mean, were there others that were skeptical as well? well? You know, you know, it, it's interesting because, and, and I say this, it, it's interesting because I gave a, a talk in Washington a couple of days ago about the book, and there were many diplomats and their wives, and I think they took a little bit of umbrage at this because. These women took it very seriously. Um, they obviously, most of them did not have careers because every three years or two years, their husbands would be, would be upped and moved. And so how can you have a career like that? They, they tried, they, I met some amazing women and they tried to really make something of their lives and make contributions. And many of them did charity work and taught and did things like that. But coming from the outside and not having a, and having a career, it was just like landing on a different planet. And also the, the, the lives that you lead as an ambassador. I mean, I think a lot of people think, well, gosh, it's, it's very glamorous. And at some, you know, aspects it, it, it is. And you certainly live in a, in a big house and there are servants and you entertain. But uh, it's also something that, that even then, and I imagine even, well, back then where you were, certainly in Peru, uh, there were dangers all the time that you had to confront. And I certainly imagine that is definitely the case with people who are stationed abroad on behalf of the United States today. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, you know, living in that life, it's kind, of, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, you get to meet people and experience things that I, I, that I never would have as, uh, as a journalist. On the other hand, at that level, you live in this very rarefied bubble. It's all cocktail parties and diplomatic receptions and state dinners. And when we lived in Peru, our house was 22,000 square feet. <laughs> and it had cooks and, and, and butlers and upstairs maids. And you rarely get to meet and interact with ordinary citizens like that, something I really enjoyed as a journalist. Which is all you did as a journalist, really. Right. On the other hand, our house had been blown up four times by terrorists before we moved there. So anytime we emerged from the house just to get pizza, we traveled in a three-car bulletproof convoy with 10 armed bodyguards. And every night, 30 armed Peruvian soldiers would take up positions around our house. And that would be another kind of fear, obviously. If you're, if you're trying to have a normal life, especially after all that you're going through, that you've gone through, I mean, that obviously, and you write about that, that that was something that gave you pause as well. Oh, well, I thought that by embracing this life, you know, the quid pro quo was I would turn in my reporter's notebooks for the little pillbox hats and white gloves, and I would live a safe life. And yet, very soon after we got there, my husband just escaped being captured at a reception that guerrillas invaded and took hundreds of guests hostage. He left 30 minutes before that happened. And so, yes, and it just it so happened that I found out just before we went to Peru that I was pregnant. I gave birth to our daughter there. And my concerns about her safety were constant. Oh, I'm sh- uh, yeah, and and that was that was something that obviously weighed on on both of you. Yes, no, it was it was tremendous. I mean, just even to keep her picture out of the paper so that no one would know what she looked like was a huge struggle because this was a big thing. No U.S. ambassador had ever, his wife had ever given birth in Peru. And so obviously people were very curious and they were very happy about it. And I just did not want anyone to even know what she looked like. Right. Uh, so eventually um, you, you did hang up the ambassador's hat or the ambassador's yes. wife's hat. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
And what what made you decide to kind of write about all this? Because this is such a unique. Um, both these 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 perspectives are so unique, and to have it, you know, for from one one woman to have lived this extraordinary uh, these differences is is really amazing. I mean, is there anybody else that that you kind of come across that kind of comes close? Um, well, I don't know. I don't think that that covers that has a sort of theme of war running through it as much. And certainly to have lived both these sort of lives, you know, I think the impetus was, first of all, it was to sort of step back and try to make sense of all this. But I also think it was a sense of there are other young women out there who maybe want to try interesting and different things. And I, I hope that this will be an inspiration for them to go out and follow your heart. You know, where you end up, that I end up ultimately sort of in a, back in a much more conventional space is beside the point. What's important is I went out and followed my heart, and I would heartily recommend that to every woman out there. All right. Well, the book, and I assume the book is available everywhere books are sold. It is. Okay. Uh, again, the title of this book, Dirty Wars and Polished Silver, and it's by Linda Schuster. Linda, thank you so much for your time this evening. My pleasure. Thank All you. Right. Uh, again, Dirty Wars and Polished Silver, a really unique perspective from a woman who was one of the first war correspondents for the Wall Street Journal in Central America, also Beirut, and then also became an ambassador's wife and what that life was like uh, in terms of the risk with that life as well. All right. We got uh, much more going here. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Uh, coming up, we are going to talk with an author about girls that don't get along with other girls. It's called Girl Hate. Why are some girls so hateful to other girls? Why isn't there more solidarity amongst women? Do parents or one's own experience determine how one woman will treat another? So that's an interesting topic that we're going to go through. And then David Schultz is back. So I can't wait to talk to him about his experiences. He has been in China for two weeks and he has been uh, talking to all kinds of people there. He has been teaching there as well. So it's great to be able to welcome him back. I think it's been almost a month since we've talked to him on, on, on this show. So that'll be great perspective. And certainly an awful lot has happened and I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Also can't wait to hear what he has to say about China as well. All right, folks, we are going to take a break. You're listening to News Radio. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 7.35 in the Twin Cities, uh, 87 degrees still, so that's obviously pretty warm. Uh, well, this half hour and next hour, Dave Schultz is back, so I can't wait to talk to him. But this hour, we are going to talk with Twinkle Zaman. She is the author of Girl Hate, Why Are Some Girls So Hateful to Other Girls? And Twinkle, am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you are. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I love the name, too. It's an awesome name. Is that your real name? Yes, it is. I, that is just absolutely great. Um, let me ask you, because um, this is something – uh, that I think a lot of people hear about, you know, there was that you know, the movie Mean Girls. I mean, it's it's been out there, and and there are. Um, I am fortunate. I do have a teenage daughter, and I I am very fortunate. Knock on wood that we have not had this problem. But I remember, you know, going to the parent teacher conference in. Um, God, I think it was about fourth grade. And one of the things they asked, well, are we, are you having any girl problems? And I kind of like, 
I, I, did, I wasn't exactly quite sure what she was referring to. Then I said, OK, of course, I know what I'm talking about. I said, no, I think we're, we're, we're good. Um, but for some people and for some parents and I know have really, really had a tough time trying to help their kids through this. When you wrote – why did you decide to write the book? I wrote the book – I mean it talks about a lot of things, but one of the topics in the book is, you know, uh, me, like the mean girl topic, why women are so hateful towards one another or negative towards another or tear each other down because I didn't notice it as much when I was younger. I honestly didn't have uh, very many – Uh, mean girl situations growing up. Um, There was always competition, you know, who would make this team, who would do that, who would have better clothing or, you know, the regular stuff. But as I've stepped into adulthood now, I see it more frequently with who has a better car, who, you know, is moving up quicker in life, who, you know, is dating who, who's getting the better job. And it's all... I hate to say it this way, but I feel like it happens within friend circle more than doing it towards a stranger. And that's what I don't understand why you would want to tear someone down close to you um, more than someone who you don't even know, you know? Okay. Well, and that, that's interesting. So it's, it's, it's this, um, you're saying that that's something that, that you've encountered. I know that other people I know have encountered it. And there have been questions along the way about why some women are not more supportive of other women's, women's efforts in terms of, you know, getting a promotion, you know, advancing more. What, what is your main, um, theory about why this happens and who is most vulnerable to it? I think it happens out of insecurity. If I could say why it would happen in, happen in my own friend circle, you know, it doesn't happen often. I don't want to say I have friends like that because I don't. All my friends are amazing. But if I see anything, I think it comes out of insecurities of your own. Because when you're insecure about something about yourself, it's so easy to tear someone down without even noticing that so, you're doing it. So, so, so you're saying that those who are the mean girls are themselves insecure? I think so. I, I mean, that's what I witnessed a lot. And I know this could go many different ways. Um, sometimes it's not always about what you're insecure about. It could be something totally different. But what I witnessed the most with women my age, they it's something that they're not happy with um, about themselves and they're, you know, they don't mean to push someone down or not congratulate somebody or not be happy for someone, but they're just so unhappy with themselves that they don't even notice that, you know, how they're acting isn't very nice. Right. How about, you know, but don't you think that the people who are most affected, I mean, are themselves perhaps insecure? In other words, you're always going to have... and maybe because I've sort of led a public life, you know, and you're always going to have the really negative comments or the, you know, catty comments or people, you know, saying one thing or another. And at, at some point, you've got to be able to sort of let it roll off your back. And I think for some people, that's harder, even if it's about clothing, if it's about something else. I think for some people, letting it roll off their back is much tougher. Uh, and it, for some people, these things affect them more. 
Um, you understand what I'm trying to say? Yes, I agree. Um, it is hard because you, it's hard to understand why you would want to put somebody down or why they would say something, even if they didn't mean it. Um, certain comments you can't help but take personally because, you know, when somebody says something good about you, it's easy to forget about that. But when someone says something bad about you, you're going to sit there and analyze that. I know I do. Right. So that's, yeah, I agree. It's hard when somebody says something you're, it's not easy whether, you know, it's somebody close or somebody not close either way. I think it's going to affect you. I know personally, it does affect me when I hear something negative said about me. In terms of, you know, the book, and again, uh, we're chatting with uh, Twinkle Zaman. She's author of Girl Hate. What are some of the other aspects of the book that in terms of, you know, what people can do about this or perhaps, you know, how we can deal with this? I think we as women just need to build each other up and motivate one another and inspire one another. And, I mean, it's easy to tear somebody down. It's very easy. But I think it does, it's even harder to build somebody up. And if you can build someone up, that shows more of who you are and your character than tearing somebody down. And why is it that girls, I mean, why does this, why does this not happen with guys? Are, are, are women just more sensitive or are they meaner or what is it? We, I don't know, women, I mean, I feel like we're emotional. We we take everything to heart. We, we're just more sensitive and guys, I don't know, guys just have it so easy. Like you can say something not very nice to a guy and they're not going to take it to heart or they may, but they not, they, they're probably not going to show it as a woman does. And they just have it easy, even with their friend circles, the way they handle conflict. It's the whole dynamic is so different men and women. They have it so much easier than us. That's how I feel. Okay. Um, tell us more about sort of the origins of the book and how you got to the point where you were going to write about this. So, the book, um, it's actually called 20-something, and I named it 20-something because everything that I wrote about in that book, I really feel in my heart is everything someone in their 20s is dealing with, whether it's um, women not treating each other very nice, not being um, happy for another, or being hateful, or two-faced, or whatever, and then there's um, stuff in there about, you know, love and romance and um, also about the struggles of just growing up and chasing after your dreams and going after what you want to do and still having to make a living and support yourself, but still not giving up on those dreams and your heart um, desires. And, and so do you think that this is something that that's sort of more difficult now for for 20-somethings, I mean, many of whom are struggling with college debt and, you know, paying back loans uh, and wondering, you know, should they decide to go back and live with mom and dad? Or is it, you know, something that, that's always been something difficult? It's not an easy time in your 20s when you're you, – really, it's the post-college and you got to kind of make it on your own. I think – this is my opinion on this. Um, I think that it's always been difficult. I don't want to say it's more difficult now because I don't know how it was back then. But I think our options are um, limitless now. 
we have so many more options, you know, and I think people, uh, my parents' age, people in their 50s or their 60s, they think in a very traditional manner. So it was growing up, going to college, getting married, having kids, a very smooth path. Um, Even though you may have bumps along the way, that was the way you thought your life would be. Um, It was the way to go. Now I feel that we have more options. Like, do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids in your 20s? Do you want to settle? Or do you want to... And statistics show that more women are opting actually not to have tw- kids in their 20s. Um, right, that's the, the, what I've been reading as well, yes. Right, I mean, that the, the, the growing, the largest percentage of growth in terms of people having babies is actually in their 30s, even 40s. And yeah. why, why do you think that is? I mean, why is it that, that, that women in their 20s that are putting off childbirth? That goes back to um, my opinion. Um, that goes back to, I think, the fact that we have more options now. We don't have to be married. We don't have to have kids. We, as women, we are able to do so much more now. Um, and I think maybe back in the day, people, you know, they didn't have as many options and maybe they were afraid to go after what they wanted and things were just different. But now the time we're living in, we don't really have to depend on a man. And it feels kind of good to say that. Um, we don't, not everyone wants to depend on a man or they don't want to start a family so early or they want to do something for themselves and make something out of their own life before they settle down and they have kids. And I love that that's an option that, you know, you don't have to graduate right out of college and be like, okay, time to get married, time to have kids and go through the same routine that everyone else is going through. All right. My guest is Twinkle Zaman, and the book is actually called 20 something. Um, in terms of those decisions, um, is, is some of it, um, you know, in terms of, I mean, I just, most of the young women I know, all of them have attempted at least to do the dating scene, uh, the online dating scene. Uh, maybe that's not where they ended up finding, you know, somebody to date or a relationship. Does that make it easier? Do you think? Because there are so many options in terms of online dating now. Um, I think, okay, personally, I, I'm not a fan of online dating at all. If there was anything. But, but don't, aren't most people sort of experiment with it or at least try it a couple of times? And actually, I've known a lot of young women who are, you know, very attractive, very successful, who actually have found their husbands on online dating sites. Yes, yes. I mean, you hear, I hear those stories, um, often. I'm not going to say I've never experimented with that. But it does give you more options. Um, I think it's different, though. I think online is very much different than actually, you know, seeing somebody for the first time in a coffee shop and just having that instant chemistry. Because when you're typing words back to each other, you may see a picture from, like, five years ago, you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. So it's very – it's different. I personally, I love – that instant chemistry with somebody because you can feel it then or there. But with online, you can be telling somebody something who you think you're attracted to and then you meet them and you're like, oh no, <laughs> that, that is not what I thought and that is not what I saw. Yeah, it, inter- so. interesting. But, but but most people you think, and how about uh, you know, decisions like you know buying a home? Because I think most, a lot of younger people I'm talking to you know, are postponing that. 
They are. And also what I'm noticing more and more um, is a lot of women are investing in homes themselves. It's no longer because, you know, they're married and they have a man in their life or because they have children. They are young, successful women going out there and buying a house for themselves. Um, And I think that's great. I actually met somebody a few weeks ago and I was, Honestly, I was amazed because we were so close in age that she was so successful in her life and she was building a home, her dream house. And I was just in complete shock. And I was like, wow, like, I, I don't know what to say. I think that's amazing. Right. Right. And although I know a lot of people are, are delaying those decisions in part, you know, for finances. I think in part, I think a lot of 20 somethings have been kind of scarred by seeing their parents go through the recession a few years ago. Yes. And, and I think. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I, th- I think I think you know, seeing their parents sort of struggle or, or suddenly lose all you know a whole bunch of the whole, their own home's value, you know, seeing their parents go through that really tough time is that had a lot of twenty somethings go. I don't want to deal with this. Right. I think it's also kind of acceptable to not be a homeowner or to build a house right now. Um, as much as the pressure is on for us in our twenties, I like how that that pressure on like buying a house and settling has kind of um, been lifted just a little bit Um, because I feel like when you come closer to your 30s, people expect you to have some kind of a foundation and I feel that it's been lifted just a little bit um, for us and it feels good to not feel like the pressure is totally on on that. If you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, Twinkle's aim in the book is 20-something, and I assume – I know I can see it's on Amazon. Is it available uh, other places as well? It's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and they can also check out my website, uh, twinklesammon.com. All right. Well, Twinkle's Ammon, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, you are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Uh, let me give you the uh, WCCO – 7.50 in the Twin Cities, the WCCO Time Check, certified Cadillacs on sale up to 40% of the original MSRP. Check out McCarthyAuto.com today. Well, we do have uh, much more ahead here on the uh, Saturday Night with Esme. Uh, coming up in our next hour, David Schultz back from China. Uh, let's take a quick break, though. We'll set up that next hour coming up. It is 7.54 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock on a still warm Saturday evening. Uh, it felt a little sticky out there. I was talking about that earlier with Jonathan Lowe. Uh, hopefully it'll get a little better maybe coming up. I think tomorrow is going to be um, a little less humid. Got uh, it. But uh, it's it's July. It's July in Minnesota and we got all these lakes and – when you get heat and you got all this water around, you're going to have humidity. It's not like Florida, but uh, you got water. You got water. That's got true. Water. That's true. Um, yeah, my son went out and uh, did some paddle boarding in Lake Calhoun. I got a call this morning. Um, Mom, um, I think the keys are at the bottom of Lake Calhoun. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wasn't a fancy set of keys, so. Oh, no. I'm like, you know, the keys, can't they go around your neck or your wrist or the 
I think they're floatable little bags, aren't they? That there's certain yeah, things some, you're supposed yeah, you to. Could, you can probably find something. A where tether, you, a tether, yeah, like those, <laughs> like those hamster wheel, hamster balls that you run around in sometimes. That that people get into those inflatable hamster balls. Oh, they have those for keys too. I, I or or a bob that you, you know, yeah. I know you have it for boats where you can put the keys on like a, a little floaty thing, mini okay. floaty thing for. The keys, they, so. they may not have those hamster balls, but they, but they should get those hamster balls for keys. <laughs> That's a great idea for an invention. Right. All right. Well, there you go. You know, I mean, that could be the next great idea, you know, for Amazon. This is what we do on Saturday night. We solve problems, people. We, we solve, solve problems. We solve problems. All right. Uh, anyway, yeah, we do solve problems. I think the, 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 that set of keys, though, is... Somewhere at the bottom of Lake Calhoun. I wonder how. what else is at the bottom of Lake Calhoun. Probably an awful lot. Uh, I don't want to think about it. I don't it. want to think about it, exactly. Um, including uh, – and they've got some pretty big fish in that lake, i got to tell you. they got some pretty big fish in that lake. Uh, every now and then they pull out one of these giant carp, not the prettiest fish in the world. But um, anyway, folks um, – We've got uh, more ahead here uh, on this Saturday night. Uh, David Schultz has actually been – I think it's been a month now because I know that he went on a vacation, well-deserved. Uh, and then he went – and I was able to talk to him in that week, so he missed that Saturday. And then um, he was hired uh, by a university in China, a very prominent university, to teach there for a couple of weeks. So we'll hear about that when we get back. He also uh, spoke for um, – Spoke to the people at the embassy in China about, uh, you know, I, I can't, well, well, we'll hear from what he spoke about as well. Obviously, a lot to ask him with the Russia investigation, sanctions, all those things. He obviously has lived and worked in Russia as well. Keep it here. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. 